Welcome back to Informed and Inflamed, where we seek to inform our minds with truth in order to inflame our hearts with love for God and neighbor. I'm Brad Owens, and I'm excited that you're joining me today for another episode. So at our church, I recently did a seminar on parenting and sexuality, and I called it, Let's Talk About It, Parenting and the Sexual Revolution. So basically what I want to do in these next two episodes is just put the same content that I used for this parenting seminar into two podcast episodes. But you know what a big and difficult topic parenting and sexuality is. And I've wrestled with the question over and over again, where should I start? And it's really difficult. That's undoubtedly been the most difficult part of preparing for this, wrestling with what to say, what order to say it in, and how to say it. And please know that I don't expect to have figured it out, what the most helpful and beneficial way to walk through these things is, but I have prayerfully wrestled for a while with how to walk through this material But one of the biggest challenges is knowing that when you speak on these things, there's such a vast range of experiences and perspectives in your audience. And there's also so much heartache and deep pain tied to these things in the lives of so many people. And because of this, in a conversation like this one, there can be several triggers that cause deep shame and guilt to rise to the surface. Maybe there's a secret struggle with sexual sin of some kind that hasn't been exposed to the light yet. Bringing that struggle out into the light is the first step toward growth and being set free from that sin. Or maybe someone has experienced abuse of some kind. Victims of abuse oftentimes carry around a deep sense of shame about what happened that just will not go away. And even though it's absolutely false, they can struggle with feelings of being responsible for what happened. Each person has their own unique story when it comes to these things, and there's no way to speak adequately to every single experience. But another good place, I think, to start is to acknowledge that the church has a poor track record in this area in different ways. Um, But that's probably a good place to start, just with some collective self-examination in the church. And it's so incredibly important for us to acknowledge the church's failure when it comes to this topic. And don't get me wrong, as with so many other things in life, it is a mixed bag. There are countless examples of Christians responding in the most ugly and hateful ways, and yet there are also so many beautiful examples of people being embraced and deeply loved in friendship with Christians. And God often uses those deep relationships to save people out of a lifestyle of walking contrary to God's good ways. But as we humbly and honestly acknowledge the church's failures in this area, it should drive us to ask God all the more desperately for wisdom to find a better way. The church should be the safest place in the world to open up about anything. But the church has done considerable harm to people who have opened up about their sins and experiences. Our hope should be that someone, no matter how hostile or resistant to change or antagonistic to the gospel, would be able to say with David in Psalm 16, verse 3, these words, 
As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. Now, of course, any relationship is a two-way street, but even non-Christians should be able to enjoy friendships with Christians and be thankful for them. They should be able to find delight and refreshment in relationships with us because of how deeply we love and care for them. I thought about this question, you know, wouldn't it be so beautiful if that was a more widespread experience among non-Christians to be refreshed and encouraged by their relationships with Christians, even if they know that their Christian friend disagrees with the way that they're living life. And parents, I think it's so important for us to create a safe place for our kids, a safe place to wrestle with questions, a safe place to express doubts about their faith or about the Bible or about what God's Word says about some particular issue in life, specifically sexuality. We should desire to create a safe place for our kids to open up about sin and even things like same-sex attraction. It has been so sad to hear those stories of Christian families that have just handled those sorts of situations really poorly, where the parent basically shuns their child for opening up about a struggle that they have, some experience that they have that may they may not even desire to have that experience, but they find themselves unable to get it to go away. So we want to create a place where our kids feel comfortable coming to us to process anything and everything. And in a recent conference on transgenderism in Charlotte, North Carolina, PCA pastor Kevin DeYoung says that the challenge before us as Christians is to hold together both concern and compassion. Both of these things are desperately needed. We must express concern over the things we see happening in our culture, and Christians desperately need to be equipped to analyze things happening in the world in light of what God's Word says. We really are living in a time of a sexual revolution. Things have been changing radically, and things have been changing rapidly. So one aspect of our collective voice as the church needs to be one of grave concern. Living in opposition to God, walking contrary to His good ways, is bad for humanity. It's bad for people, so that's why we care. It leads to deep misery and agony and emptiness, and we express concern over what we see happening because we care, because we care about God's glory in the world and we care about the good of people. So even as we express our concerns, we want those two things to come through, our concern for God's glory and our concern for people. And not only do we need to voice our concerns about things happening in the culture, we also need to voice our concerns about how the culture is influencing the church. When it comes to pornography and self-gratification, for example, the church looks a lot like the world, and that's not the way it should be. God's grace not only wipes away our sin and removes God's righteous wrath from over our heads, but it is also God's power to change us. Of course, we shouldn't expect the total elimination of sin from our lives this side of eternity, but we should expect to experience real growth in godliness and to see sin slowly losing its grip on our hearts. So the same concern that we express over the ways of the world, we should also express over the church. We are meant to be the light of the world, as Jesus said in Matthew 5. 
showing the world the beauty and the joy of living in line with God's good design. And there's much work to be done within the church in order for us to live out this glorious calling that God has given to us. And as much as we need to voice our concern over things, we also need to be people marked by compassion. This is something we've often failed to do, and this failure has left countless people who are already hurting in even deeper pain. But when we look at the life of Jesus recorded in the Gospels, we find something very interesting. A pattern emerges that shows Jesus interacting with the religious leaders of his day, oftentimes from a stance of pretty fierce opposition. And then we find that Jesus' typical way of engaging with outcasts and those tangled up in sin was characterized by gentleness and compassion. And in many ways, the church has failed to walk in the footsteps of Jesus when it comes to how we engage with those outside the church. You see, both position and posture matter. We all stand somewhere when it comes to issues of sexuality. And as Christians, we should want to stand in the position that is faithful to Scripture. There are a lot of voices speaking into our ears, but the voice that matters most is God's voice speaking to us in the Bible. But right along with our desire to take a biblical position, we also want to embrace a loving and compassionate posture toward people. This too is biblical. God tells us both where we should stand and how we should stand there, position and posture. The challenge, of course, is holding these two things together, position and posture or concern and compassion, in a way that's beautiful, compelling, and most of all, that pleases God. That's what we're after. If we are Christians, our deepest desire should be to do what pleases God and brings Him the most glory. We want to walk in His ways, trusting that God's ways are better for us and lead to human flourishing. The world is painting a very different picture, and they tell us that doing things our own way will be what makes us the happiest and most fulfilled in life. We are living in the midst of two rival visions of the good life. The world says one thing and God says another. And we make choices in light of this rivalry every single day. And each decision either moves us one step further down the road of God's path or one step further down the road of the world's path. The world promises us the good life can be obtained if we walk in its ways. And this is nothing new. This is exactly the same logic that the serpent used when tempting Eve. So I'm going to read Genesis 3, verses 1 through 7. But before I do, let me just say that in Genesis 1 and 2, the creation story, God has put Adam and Eve in a world of abundance. They are in paradise. And in the midst of this world of abundance, God has given them one firm no. Everything else was yes. It was a world of yes. Yes, enjoy this. Enjoy that. Do as you please but don't touch this one tree. And the point of that one no was to teach Adam and Eve that they were not the creator, that they were creatures, that they were dependent on God and were meant to recognize his supreme authority. So it's helpful that we understand that they lived in a world of abundance and that God has put us in a world of abundance even though we live after the fall. So there's much more, there's brokenness and the fallen nature of creation all around us. But in Genesis 3, 1 through 7, here's what God's word says. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, 
Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, let's pause there for just a second and recognize that a picture of God is being painted here by the serpent where God is a killjoy, where he's holding back from us good things, and he doesn't truly have our best interest at heart. So that is the tactic here on display by the serpent. And the result of that we see in verses 6 and 7. It says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now again, what I want to highlight here is just that the same tactics that the serpent used in the garden, those very same tactics are being used today. The same voice whispers into our hearts and minds today where the serpent said, did God really say we can find ourselves wrestling with questions and our children are growing up wrestling with questions like, did God really say that marriage is a lifelong union between one man and one woman designed to reflect the relationship between Christ and the church? Did God really say that he makes us either male or female, and therefore our bodies do indeed tell us who we are? Or did God really say that the only proper place for sexual enjoyment is within marriage? These are the doubts and these are the lies that he whispers into our ears today. And we need to be aware of this. But Scripture is clear on these issues. I haven't unpacked the scriptural arguments in this episode or the next. I don't plan to either. But the reason for that is because it it takes some time. But there are incredible books out there that do an incredible job of laying out all that Scripture says about marriage, sex, homosexuality, transgenderism, things like that, and They deal with objections in a very helpful way. So I'll mention a few of those books at the end of this episode that do an incredible job, and I highly recommend them. But Scripture is clear, and another thing, church history, I think, can be an anchor for us in the midst of just the chaos and the craziness that we're living in these days. But on these issues of marriage and sexuality, church history is an anchor for us in that the church for over 2,000 years now has spoken with virtually one voice when it comes to these matters. And so that should give us great confidence in Scripture's authority and its clarity when it comes to matters of sexuality. But Hillary Morgan Ferrer, she wrote a book called Mama Bear Apologetics. There are two of these books out now. One is just a general apologetics book, and they just put out recently a Guide to Sexuality. And so from this newer book, The Guide to Sexuality, Hillary Morgan Ferrer says this, Our kids are being desensitized, song by song, cartoon by cartoon, numb to the point where immorality feels like no big deal. 
We want them to be able to dispense with the false ideas about sexuality that our culture sends their way, which means we need to start discipling them yesterday. So I love this quote because she highlights the great need that there is for discipleship in this area when it comes to raising our children. Parents are tasked with being the primary disciplers of children. And I think we need to start early with highlighting God's good design. We're seeing this with our kids already, where Hattie will just be joking around about, I want to be a boy, or Daddy, you're a girl. And she's trying to be funny, but and we're not freaking out when she says, I want to be a boy, that she's experiencing gender dysphoria or anything. But we use it as these little opportunities to just highlight God's good design in very brief ways. So we tell her, no, baby, God actually made you a girl, and he made daddy a boy, and that's good. He makes people either boys or girls. And God made you a girl, and that's good. You get to grow up to be a woman someday. And so in very simple ways like that, even with a almost four-year-old, we're trying to highlight God's good design. And as they grow, we should deal with mankind's distortions of God's good design. And even in the way that we talk about mankind's distortions, we also want to highlight compassion, that these are not just issues, but these are people that we're talking about, people made in God's image that deserve to be loved and respected by us. Later in the book, she goes on to say, if we want our kids to be wise to the schemes of the world, they have to be able to see beyond the pretty packaging. So just like Satan in the garden in Genesis 3, he tries to paint a, an attractive and compelling picture of living life on our own terms. That's what he seeks to do with Adam and Eve is to make disobeying God look attractive, like it's a better way to live. And the world is trying to do the same thing to us today and to our children. So we have to help our kids see an alternative way of life lived in disobedience to God is being packaged in a way that makes it look very beautiful, very appealing. And we have to help them see that it's a lie that's being wrapped up in pretty things to try to make it attractive to us. But the world is pushing a particular way of viewing things, a particular framework into the minds and hearts of our kids. And one of the most powerful ways this is happening is through the subtle use of repetition. Daniel Kahneman, a psychologist, said this, a reliable way to make people believe in falsehoods is frequent repetition because familiarity is not easily distinguished from truth. Now, I don't think this means we have to keep our kids from watching movies, TV shows, or playing video games, or anything like that. We can actually use the repetition in our favor because the repetition is providing us with opportunity after opportunity to have conversations with our kids that allow us to apply a biblical, gospel-centered lens to the messages and values of our culture. This is the big idea behind the book, The Pop Culture Parent, Helping Kids Engage Their World for Christ. And now, of course, there are some things in culture that we should just completely reject and never enjoy. But at the same time, we can't entirely retreat from culture. So as a parent, I think we need to learn to see these things as opportunities instead of reasons to retreat from culture. The repetition our culture uses to shape our children's way of viewing the world is dangerous primarily when it's not accompanied by our parental help 
in analyzing everything from a biblical perspective. But if we're on the lookout for opportunities to do this, the repetition can work in our favor by giving us opportunity upon opportunity to help our kids see things through the lens of God's Word. But in the book, Mama Bear Apologetics, they have this ROAR method. ROAR is an acronym for how you can analyze any sort of cultural product, movie, TV show, song. And the acronym ROAR stands for this. R is recognize the message. So just basically think about the messaging that's being sent through the movie or the song, whatever it may be. O is offer discernment. And here we're looking to point out the good because of God's common grace, there's there are good things being produced in culture, things that do line up with God's word, even if the person who produced it isn't a Christian. So we want to point out the good, and of course, we also want to point out the bad and draw attention to that. That's what I tried to do in one of my recent podcast episodes on Stranger Things, is to just analyze that Netflix series from a Christian perspective and offer a few thoughts on what's good in it, and also what's concerning in it. A is argue for a healthier approach, and here you're really applying a biblical worldview to the issue. And the last R is reinforce through discussion, discipleship, and prayer. And again, they are just highlighting the importance of creating a safe place for our children to ask questions, to express doubts, and to create that safe place where we don't freak out when they come to us with questions or with doubts, um, but we have an ongoing conversation with our children to talk about these things. And as we help our children embrace the biblical position on these matters, we're also modeling for them, whether we realize it or not, the kind of posture we should take in engaging with people. For example, if we speak of gay people in a demeaning or judgmental way, Our children are learning from that example. So in a neat but convicting way, parenting continually leads us to examine ourselves in these areas. And we need to repent when necessary, talk to our kids about how we've spoken carelessly or harshly, and seek to grow together. But let me mention these three books for the final little bit of this episode. So I've mentioned Mama Bear Apologetics, Guide to Sexuality, as a great book, highly recommend it. They dig into issues like pornography, marriage, sex, homosexuality, same-sex attraction, and transgenderism, and do a great job walking through those things. Uh, Kevin DeYoung has a book called What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? And this book is great because he is faithful to Scripture. He deals with objections, does a great job tackling those, And also, because he's a pastor, there's just this pastoral sensitivity that's woven throughout the book, and it's very helpful. And the last one I'll mention is by Sam Alberry called Is God Anti-Gay? This is the shortest of the books. It's like 90 pages. Great little read. And what makes his book unique is that he tackles a lot of the same things that these other two books will tackle, but his story is unique in that all he's ever known is same-sex attraction. And so he has chosen to live a celibate single life in order to uphold Scripture's teaching and live in light of it. Um, But because of his situation and the decision he's made to live a celibate single life, he can understand just the costliness of making that decision and um, the difficulties and challenges 
that it brings. So I think that gives this book a unique strength to it. But that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for joining me, and I look forward to connecting with you again next time.